C.S. Lewis once said, a man making the enormous claims that Jesus was making was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He wasn't making small proclamations, was he, when he said, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the hope of the world, I am the good shepherd, I'm the door to the sheep, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. And the proclamation we're going to look at today is the proclamation that all of those massive proclamations hang on, and so we're going, to, we're going to dive into the text here a little bit. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to John 8, and this is where we're going to camp out uh, today and really uh, launch into the rest of our series from this point. So uh, have you ever been in one of those situations where you're just like, you don't know how, but you're like, well, that escalated quickly? I mean, maybe it's at home and things just got, get chaotic with your kids, or maybe uh, there's a situation that you got in and you're like, I don't know how this got to this point, but it escalated quickly. Uh, maybe tensions start to rise, tempers start to rise, maybe a fight breaks out. Well, this is really kind of the scene at the end of John 8. And uh, for those of you that think that, you know, that these are just mild bedtime stories, you got to dig into the text a little bit more, especially surrounding really the controversy that Jesus created. I mean, there was just a magnitude about him that really couldn't be contained. Uh, even when he's like, hey, let's keep this quiet for a minute, news was spreading, right? And this question was circulating, who is this man named Jesus? And so um, at the end of, of, uh, of John 8, if you look at the end of John 8, there's this moment where the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, uh, were ready to pick up stones and stone Jesus. I mean, there was this heated argument that had gotten to the place now where they're ready to kill this man. Now, in, in Jesus' culture, that's how you got canceled in Jesus' day. It's like, it, it wasn't just like, we're, we're cutting you, it's like, we're going to kill you, like in, on the spot. And this was the, the moment that Jesus had found himself in. And so the question really was, who is this Jesus? But in the way that they meant it, what they were asking is, who does this Jesus think that he is? I mean, who does this guy think that he is? He's coming around talking about he has the, you know, he's forgiving sins and things like this. And, you know, he's making a lot of suggestions that they're not very comfortable with. That's brushing up against their worldview and they don't like it very much. And so they're starting to push back. Have you ever hold, heard the old adage, don't ask questions you don't want answers to? Well, they wanted to ask that question, but they didn't like the answer that they were getting from Jesus, and that's how this moment really became so contentious. And so chapter 8 really begins, and if you're familiar with the story of the woman caught in adultery and the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they bring this woman that was literally caught in the act of adultery. They drop her down at Jesus' feet as a trap to basically say, let's see what he does. Let's see if he follows the law of Moses, which gives us permission to stone such women, or let's see if he really is all about this love and compassion that he talks about. And so they put him, they feel like they back him into a corner, but just spoiler alert, you can't back Jesus into a corner. He will outsmart you every single time. They have not learned their lesson. And so he outsmarts them. And if you remember that one line that he just dismantles the crowd, he says, all right, yeah, we can stone her. You're right. The law of Moses says that. How about whoever was without sin can throw the first stone? One by one, they walk away. But I guarantee they didn't walk away like just calmly. I mean, I'm sure they were in, in, in their heart of hearts infuriated because Jesus just outwitted them yet again. And so that was a humiliating moment. And so as we kind of walk through John 8, they start to become a little bit more humiliated, a little bit more frustrated. And there's multiple exchanges about essentially who do, who do you think that you are? 
And so it could have been that they got a little bit frustrated when, um, when they claimed to be sons of Abraham. They claimed to say that, hey, Abraham is our true father. And Jesus sort of called them illegitimate in that sense. He said, yeah, because sons of Abraham were essentially the nation of Israel, right? You remember God showed Abraham the stars in the sky and said, your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky. And so they felt like they were the true, like the true and chosen. And they were the nation. But what happened was they lost sight of God. And what he was saying is, Jesus' response to them, first of all, was, you're not Abraham's children. It's pretty mean, right? But He's speaking plainly and truthfully, and if anybody has a right to say these things, it's Jesus. If you were Abraham's children, he said, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. You're not following in your father's footsteps, he's saying. But now you seek to kill me, a man who did, uh, sorry, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. Which poses the question, who's he talking about when he's talking about our father? He's saying, Abraham's not your father, but he's like, no, you're actually doing the works of your father. What are you suggesting? Well, he says it plainly. So they're getting frustrated, and he's, he, he pushes on a little bit further. It's probably a trigger point when he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But I tell you the truth, and you don't believe me. You don't love the truth, he's saying. In fact, you're of your father, the devil. So I can imagine at this point, they're a little bit more frustrated. They're a little bit more riled up. Because the summary is, you're a bunch of liars just like your father, the devil. You know, Don't use that line at home, right? Like That is not a good line. And if one person had the right to say it and was righteous and justified in saying it, as we're going to see here in just a minute, it was Jesus. And so they're wound up at this point. The Jews weren't backing down, though. They were sparring back, and Jesus wasn't backing down either. The Jews answered him then, so they're like, okay, we can throw some names around too. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, they're trying to play his game. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, and I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Who are you to say that we can't taste death? Who are you to say that you have the authority to do so? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, they died. Who do you make yourself out to be? They're starting to get what he's laying down, right? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, right? And you have seen Abraham. You've been around. You're trying to say that you have seen Abraham. You're not. We can see. You're like, you know, you're in your 30s. There's no way. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Now, this is the statement. 
that absolutely rocks them, and now they know for sure he is saying what indeed they think he is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in two words, he makes the most enormous claim that any man could ever make. In fact, if a man made this statement and was not truthful in making this statement, they would have been justified in stoning him right then and there because it would have been blasphemy. And so you might say, well, what's so, he's saying before Abraham was, I am. Like, and what, first of all, that's not even great grammar, right? That doesn't make sense. Shouldn't he be saying before Abraham was, I was, right? That's not what he's saying. And he knew, the, the, the Jews knew that wasn't what he was saying either. What he, he meant, exactly what he said, he did not misspeak. You see, Jesus was claiming to be, I am. He was referring back to a story that many of you may know in Exodus, in Exodus 3, where Moses gets called by God and sent by God to deliver the Israelites out of slavery Moses is like, I, I'm not the guy, like you can't send me. Yeah, we want to save the Israelites, but I'm not the guy. And he has his doubts. And so he's having this exchange with God. And so he's trying to use another sort of rhetoric to get out of it. And he says, okay, well, who, who do I even say sent me? This is Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, they're going to ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? You know, they're... Who am I to go and talk to them? I need to at least tell them who sent me. So what's your name? Give me your name, God. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. Say this to the people, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and I am to be remembered throughout all generations. When in Exodus, when Moses asked, what is your name? God says, I am. So Jesus' claim was clear. He was saying before Abraham was, I am. So what does it mean? I love how John Piper uh, simplifies this. He says the most common and the most important name for God in the Old Testament is a name that in our English versions never gets translated. Whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, you know that the name, that this name is behind it. In the Hebrew, the name had four letters, Y-H-W-H. And it may have been pronounced something like Yahweh. The Jews came to regard this word with such reverence that they would never take it upon their lips lest they inadvertently had taken that name up in vain. So whenever they came to the name in their reading, they pronounced the word Adonai, which means my Lord. The English versions have followed the same pattern. They translate the name Yahweh with the word Lord in all caps. So anytime you see the word Lord, essentially it's this name behind it. This is not a very satisfactory thing to do, though, because the English word Lord does not communicate to our ears a proper name like John or Michael or Noel. But Yahweh is God's proper name in Hebrew. The importance of it can be seen in the sheer frequency of its use. It occurs 6,828 times in the Old Testament. That's more than three times as often as the simple word God. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He is unequivocally stating, I am the infinite, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the omniscient God standing before you. And this is the moment that they drew up stones for the price was blasphemy 
for such a statement. But what they hadn't considered was this. What they maybe didn't consider, maybe because of their own pride or maybe because of just the enormity of the moment, what if he was telling the truth? That would explain the miracles. That would explain all the questions that were arising. It would explain his infinite understanding and his ability to outwit them at every turn. It would, under, it would explain the, the prophecies that he even made in his day that would come true. It would explain the fact that this man was unlike any other man, and there was no explanation that they could give to it. Because if Jesus was I am, it would make sense. He wasn't just a man. He was God, the second person of the Godhead. And every other I am that we're going to encounter together over the course of this journey hangs on him being the great I am. Because if he is not God in the flesh, if he is not God incarnate, it doesn't really matter if he says that he's the light of the world, the hope of the world, the good shepherd. Otherwise, he was just a raving madman spewing off these statements. But we know to be true that Jesus was indeed I am. That question is more important than any of us could ever know. It's one we all must wrestle with. And you remember that moment that we set up earlier, that, that moment where Jesus was having this intimate moment with his disciples, and he posed the question, who do you say that I am? you got to love Simon. You know, all the other guys had answers to the, well, here's what everybody else says you are, but Simon, he's confident enough to speak up, and he says this, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And so for those who believe and say with Simon Peter, Jesus is Christ, son of the living God. He's Yahweh, the great I am. How do we live in response to that? How do we respond to that, that belief, that foundational belief? I just want to look quickly here at three responses for those who know Jesus to be I am. And the first is this, we behold his glory. We behold his glory. Can you imagine that the Jewish leaders, Jesus standing right in front of them, I mean, God in their midst, the one that they claimed they worshiped, the one that they claimed that they knew, standing right in front of them, yet they missed him. The fullness of God right in front of their faces, and they fail to behold who is right in front of them. But I wonder how often we do the same. And maybe in some ways it's because our faith gets stagnant at times and seasons. And we have this opportunity to literally encounter God through the person of Jesus. But do we behold him? Do we magnify him? Do we grasp or even try to, because we can never fully grasp, do we begin to grasp who is this man? Who is this Jesus, do we begin to ponder on the fullness of his glory? Our prayer should be, God, give us eyes to see. Give us a pure heart that beholds your glory. The word for glory uh, in the Hebrew is this word kabod. Kabod, right? I asked our Hebrew scholar, because sometimes I feel like I pronounce these words wrong, but I asked him. And so, in the earliest roots of the word define it is weight. So it's this idea of this magnitude, this weight, kabod. 
The Jewish community would later define it as the weight, greatness, eminence, power, and authority of God. So let me just ask, when is the last time you fixed your gaze upon the full weight, the full magnitude of Jesus, the great I am? When is the last time that you were transfixed by his majesty? When is the last time that you were enamored by his beauty? When is the last time that the mere thought of God took the breath from your lungs? It's something that's far too easy to take for granted. A disciple of John named Arrhenius wrote words that are often shared, and I love these words. I've, I've quoted these before myself. The glory of God is the human being fully alive. That God's glory is in the human being being fully alive. When we are fully alive, it's to God's glory. The less quoted second part, though, is this, and the life of the human consists in beholding God. The life of the human consists in beholding God. That our very existence, the core of who we are, really exists in beholding who God is, beholding his glory. Yes, friends, God wants nothing more than for us to be fully alive, but the only way that that happens is when we behold his glory. The one who reveals himself to John in the Revelation saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We behold his glory. We reflect his glory. One of Jesus' challenge of the Jewish leaders throughout the Gospels is that they were more concerned with their own glory than God's glory. Maybe they started off in the right direction, but over time, they were more concerned with their own power, their own acclaim. They would pray in such a way that people would pay attention to them and say, look at how spiritual they are, look at how holy they are, and they would take their eyes off of the holiness of God. And so Jesus would push on those things all the time. And even in this exchange that we just read about, they ask him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, they died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I mean, what an example for us, you know? Jesus, the one who actually could have claimed glory for himself, says, I'm going to defer and reflect God's greater glory. The only glory that I'm going to demonstrate is the glory that he gives me, the glory that comes through him. When we first behold Christ as Lord, he then reveals his glory in us and through us. And when people look at our lives, they might be like, you live different. Like, I just can't. Why do you have so much joy in your life? Or how do you have such discipline? Or how do you, where do these character qualities come from? And they might elevate you in that way and say, hey, listen, Anything that is really good in me comes through the Father. I mean, I can't take credit for it. I'm still fighting my earthly nature and my earthly flesh. And the truth is, you're going to see some things that, that are unsavory as well. But the truth is, any glory that I can claim is glory that is directly attributed to God. It's just a reflection of him off of my face, off of my being. So we reflect God's glory. Paul gives the Colossians plain instruction when he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I mean, right here we're seeing kind of the, the beholding of God, right, through these practices, through these 
important rhythms. And then he says this after all that. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, our lives are meant to be a reflection of glory and gratitude to God who gives us life and breath and purpose and meaning. One of the most brilliant composers, Bach, I don't know if you're into classical music, but you can't, you really listen to a classical composition. It's it's an amazing work of art. But if you're I mean, and his name is Bach. If you're known by your first name, like that's saying something. Oh, yeah, Bach. Like, I don't know his music necessarily, but I know that name is a significant name. Yet Bach was not enamored with his own glory. Instead, he was swept up by a greater glory, the glory of the great I am. If you know his work, you have seen that at the bottom of his manuscripts, he wrote uh, the initials SDG, Sole Dio Gloria, which means glory to God alone. What you may not know is that at the top of his manuscripts, he also wrote Jesu Juva, which means, is Latin for Jesus' help. So we are a people that, with God's help, have the opportunity to reflect God's glory in the same way that Bach did. And the last thing I would say is proclaim his glory. That we are a people that are called to proclaim the glory of the great I Am. I want to encourage you And all of us to do, as the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory that he alone deserves. You know what's interesting is that when we talk about giving glory to Jesus, we're not giving him something he doesn't already have. He doesn't require us, like he's up there waiting for us to give him glory, right? He already has all the glory. But we have this opportunity, we have this divine privilege to give glory back to God in everything that we do. So when we ascribe to Yahweh the glory that he alone deserves, we're just joining the chorus that's already in session. Glory is already his. We simply acknowledge his glory. So we worship him with our lips, and we worship him with our entire lives. Luke 19, 37 through 40 says, I love this moment. This is a moment that as we kind of prep for the Easter season, and we really lead up to the Easter season, there's this moment where Jesus is actually worshiped in the streets, and he's he's riding in on, you know, he's, he's not riding in in some magnificent way, but in, in humility, he rides into the city, and there's this worship opportunity that breaks out among those that would, would agree with us that, that he is deserving of glory. And when he came near to the place, it says, where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they cried out. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees still weren't buying it, and some in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I love Jesus' response. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. We're just joining the chorus when we sing of God's glory. And so I'd encourage you, behold his glory, reflect his glory, 
proclaim his glory. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're going to take an opportunity here to do that very thing. We're just going to sing out, and through some of the things that we've written together, we're going to share a moment of worship together, and I just want to encourage you to maybe you take a moment and just behold him in a different way, and you take kind of a reflective posture in your worship today, or um, maybe you just sing out, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to just be uninhibited today by anything else that's going on. I just want to sing out to him uh, in this last song. But we're going to take a moment, and we're going to do that very thing. We're going to proclaim together. So let me just pray, and then we'll do that together. God, thank you so much for reminding us. Every time we come into this place as a collective community of people that just share this common belief that you are the Son of the living God, that you are Lord, that you are Yahweh, that you are God in the flesh. And God, we thank you that you did not keep yourself hidden from us, but you saw it in your own great pleasure to reveal yourself to us, the undeserving. Our lives are stained. We know that on our own, God, we, we're not much, God, but because of who you are, because we are your image bearers, because you have declared us worthy, God, in revealing your son to us. We can live these lives that are fully alive, reflecting your glory, demonstrating your glory, proclaiming your glory. God, we were made for worship. We want to continue in everything that we do to worship you with our lips, to worship you with our lives. Jesus, we love you.